Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the media podcast. I'm Matt Deaton. On the show today, a special episode on the BBC's impartiality problems. We've assembled a crack team of independent BBC experts to examine all the issues, as well as talking about some of the impacts of the BBC strike this week. And in the deep dive, we catch up on the outcry following the axing of the 99-year-old choir, the BBC Singers. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. And in the news this week, Meta is laying off even more staff. This is 10,000 who are targeted as part of a larger plan to flatten the company's management structure. Publisher Reach has also announced a second major round of redundancies this year. Uh, Overall, it set out plans to cut around 300 staff in 2023. And over in America, viewership of the 95th Academy Awards last weekend jumped 12% over the previous year. A ray of hope for the struggling award show industry. But on today's show, we've gathered a panel of media experts to examine what's gone so wrong for the BBC, from the way they've handled Lineker, right through to the release of some WhatsApp messages showing pressure from Downing Street. We have a great panel of guests. First up is Roger Bolton. He's a former BBC and Thames TV executive, presented Right to Reply and Feedback, and now a podcaster to fronting Roger Bolton's Watch. It's been a busy week for you. I've seen you pop up on loads of things, as well as your podcast. Well, you know, it never rains, but it pours for the BBC when things happen and uh, of course when there's one big problem or scandal everybody goes to find another one and things have pulled out the woodwork and very conveniently the BBC has provided three or four really good stories Uh, it wouldn't regard them as good stories but oh dear it's been a dreadful week and you you wonder if the Director General has had any sleep at all Also with us is Dr Graham Majin who's a former BBC journalist and currently Senior Lecturer in Documentary Journalism at Bournemouth University He's also the author of a new book entitled Truth Phobia, how the boomers broke journalism. That's a story of uh, what he thinks is the death of impartial and objective news. So definitely on topic for today. When did you finish the book? Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Matt. So it's uh, hot off the presses, available on Amazon. Great. And we're definitely going to be talking about the topic today. And finally, welcome to friend of the show, Faraz Osman, Managing Director at Gold Waller, and also previously a, a bit of a BBC employee. I, whenever we talk about a topic, you've always been previously an employee of that place. <laughs> I, I try to put myself in the centre of every story, Matt. That's basically yes. my MO. Well, last weekend saw disrupted sports programming after the BBC benched Gary Lineker for political tweets. Uh, the debacle triggered an independent review of the broadcaster's social media guidelines and raised many questions about its leadership and approach to impartiality. I mean, Graham, 
has the BBC's attitude to impartiality, or maybe the audience's attitude to impartiality, changed over time? Absolutely, yes. It's changed enormously, uh, and that's really what I've been researching and kind of going back to look at how people spoke about impartiality, how they valued it in the past. I mean, just a quick example. In 1954, Richard Baker, do any of us remember uh, the late, great Richard Baker? He was the BBC's first ever TV newsreader. And he recalled that at the start, in those days, he said, newsreaders were never seen because it was feared our facial expressions might not always look impartial. So they were out of vision uh, when BBC TV news started, just in case, you know, a raised eyebrow or something gave the game away. And yeah, if you look at what director generals said, and um, a guy called Desmond Taylor I came across, who was editor of BBC TV news back in the 1970s, he was pleading with journalists at the time to preserve impartiality. He, he felt it was dying then in the 1970s. He said, we suppress our views and it's a massive effort to do so. So he understood people have always had personal opinions and things they feel passionately about. He said, a, a broadcasters must have the same attitude to the raw material that an employee of a bank has to its money. It isn't his. He's handling it on behalf of other people. He must preserve it scrupulously. He must not try to change people's minds or confirm their beliefs. He must give them the untainted information they need to make up their own minds. It's a really world away, Matt. I mean, for us, is the problem the public and not the broadcasters? Is this the public's view of impartiality has changed and now we're at a point where everyone's so politicised, maybe not quite as much as America is, but everyone wants to jump on any kind of perceived bias. It's always, it's always existed. Journalists generally cover it up and, and try and do a good job. Is it really the public's fault we're in this mess? I mean, I'm reticent to just, <laughs> compl- just say it's, it's the public's fault. We need to, that sounds very close to saying democracy isn't something that we should be, we should be offering the, the citizens of the people. It's like a, that, that case sounds a very dangerous, slippery, slippery slope. I, I think two things are clear here. Number one, the word impartiality feels like it's a simple word, but actually it's incredibly complicated. And it's one of those things that's just complicated to define, let alone understand what it is and, and make a ruling on it. But in addition to that as well, we in the last few years, perhaps even a decade, we've had a media world that absolutely rewards outrage, right? It rewards people taking an opinion and the most extreme opinion that creates the most extreme reaction is the one that gets rewarded by retweets and attention and etc. So that has kind of created a perfect storm when it comes to impartiality, because actually being impartial is seen as quite boring it doesn't get you attention it doesn't get you what you need and I was actually going through Gary Lineker's tweets and there are only very few of them that have political leanings on them things that aren't impartial don't get anywhere as near as much engagement and it's only when he speaks out about an issue that suddenly everyone sit up and take attention which then begs the question what's the point of a Twitter account if it's not to take a view and be outrageous Roger uh, are you impartial I try to be, and I think the people who say everybody's uh, partial are right, but it doesn't mean that because you can't be perfect, you shouldn't try to be good. 
So I try to be impartial, but except uh, when I went to the BBC, I did. Now I am allowing more of my views to come forward. But I'm a passionate believer in impartiality, as long as you recognize your own prejudices and try to allow for them. I mean, I think this argument is confusing three sets of people. There are people who work for BBC News and Current Affairs and journalists, and they should be impartial. They should not tweet, and I think the BBC should be hard line about that. When you're dealing with people who are occasional freelancers and who are guests or do the odd show, why should they restrict what they say as long as it's within the law? The key area is this middle ground where you get somebody like Gary Lineker, not on the BBC staff, but the highest paid presenter, regarded by many people as the face of the BBC, and he starts sounding off on a subject which for the next 18 months to two years until the general election will be the heart of the political debate. And there are a whole range of Tories, and a few Labour, but a whole range of Tories desperate to bash the Beeb. And he's helping them. Now, what you've got to ask is, Gary Lineker paid well over a million and a quarter pounds a year by the BBC. Is it worth it? Looking from the BBC's point of view, it's very, very tricky. You can write guidelines, but that's what they are, guidelines. And they've got to be interpreted. And it's extremely difficult to interpret them. So I think impartiality, most people don't understand impartiality. And anyway, by the way, it's due impartiality. You don't have to be impartial between somebody who says two and two equals five and two, somebody who says two and two equals four. It's due impartiality. And then you've got to, we've got to collectively decide what we want. But, you know, the heartland is protect the news and current affairs. And also, if you care about the BBC, Gary, calm down. Stop tweeting so much on this subject of controversy. So for, for us, Gary knows he's a lightning rod. Yeah, we've had issues with him over the past few years. Clearly, the money's part of that as well. Do you agree with Roger? Should he have a bit more respect for his one of his main employers? Maybe not the one that pays him the most, uh, but the one that uh, he knows uh, is maybe sometimes in trouble. I think the first thing to, to note is... There was some guidance. My understanding is that there was some guidance that the BBC updated a few years ago that some people called the Lineker rule, which was if you have a outsized role on the BBC, then you should be mindful of what you tweet. It was very vague and I would argue very much open to interpretation, as we've seen by the week's shenanigans. My thoughts on it are the whole saga has been a bit of an insult onto the BBC audience. It's kind of almost gone back to the Reefian values of we know better than the public knows themselves. No, and, those aren't the Reefian values. Sorry, not Reefian values. So the, 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 sorry, I say the, the Reefian era, I should say. The Reefian era of the, of the BBC knows better than, you know, the, the art and the culture is something that we should enlighten the public about. And I, I think that they've been slightly unfair on the audience because my view on it is there's been a lot of conversation around, well, what if Gary Lineker tweeted something in the other direction? Right. What if he tweeted in support of Suella Braverman or he tweeted, you know, if you look at what's been going on with J.K. Rowling, for instance, it's something that, in, that enrages almost like the other side of the political spectrum. Would he have suffered the same treatment? Would it have even got noticed? Would it have got as many headlines? The answer is if there had been a Labour government in power, yes, he would. No, I actually, I, I disagree with that. I think it wouldn't have got as many headlines. I think it would have got a lot of attention on social, but I don't think the newspapers would have written about it as much. What you've got to look at is the, is this the question of the language used. I mean, you can't have a debate on Twitter, an intelligent debate on Twitter. It's not possible. Correct. Right. So what you've got to say is how well are the public informed about this? And I think where Gary is right is that the language of the other, which is being used often, dehumanises people. That's right. But the issue at the heart of this is about asylum seekers and refugees is difficult. I mean, let me test you. This is unfair. Do you know how many um, UK asylum applications there were last year? My 
knowledge is there's, there's certainly nowhere near as many. I think it's 0.5% compared to the rest of Europe is, is what we right. take well, in. Well, the figures are, are 74,000 last year. There were in France there were 180,000 asylum applications last year, and in the total asylum applications for the EU, Norway, and Switzerland were just close to a million. Now the point is, you ask anybody in the street about this, they'd have no idea, and you could. Why should they? But they'll go onto Twitter. So there has to be a role. There has to be a place somewhere, and I'd say it's the BBC and bound by news, bound by impartiality, where you can trust people to try and find out all the truth and give it to you. Because people are arguing on the basis, largely on Twitter, on prejudice or what they've heard from their friends. It's not a reasonable debate. Yeah, but Roger, I'm in complete agreement with you. And, and, and found that one of the things that I found most frustrating about this week is that we've moved on from talking about the issue and whether or not this policy is the right policy or is it creating a hostile environment or is it actually just simply against our respect for human rights and dignity and gone on and talked about a, a football presenter. I think what my point is, is that if you are somebody that starts tweeting a lot about issues that are away from the mainstream public opinion, your stock as a presenter falls and, and you become less attractive on the market simply because you're somebody that a lot of people don't want to watch because you don't agree with that person and that personality. Is one of the issues that kind of Gary's salary and position means he can kind of be above that freight and not care about it. And Graham, I'm interested in your book, uh, and about what we're talking about, about political pressure. Have governments got more concerned with this or has it always been an issue that the party in power gets annoyed by the BBC asking decent questions? Yeah, I think for sure that you know governments have always tried to put pressure on the BBC. I came across a quote actually from Ian Jacob, who was Director General between 1952 and 59. He was asked by the government to censor information about the Suez invasion of 1956. And he said if the BBC is found for the first time to be suppressing significant items of news, its reputation would rapidly vanish. So interesting, he seemed to think that had never happened. But I think, you know, it's interesting listening to what Roger and Faraz were saying, because uh, I think partly the debate there sh seemed to shift away from impartiality to accuracy. You know, Roger was talking about whether what Gary uh, was saying was accurate, really. No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. I, what I was saying was that the, he was concerned with the language. When it comes to numbers and to policy, A, neither party, frankly, major power, have a real policy to solve it. It's so difficult and, and aren't honest with people about it. What I was trying to argue was you want at least one organisation that you know is trying to get to the truth as honestly as possible, as objectively as possible. And they, once they've tried to establish as far as possible what the facts are, then everybody can have a view on what the policy should be. But let's make sure that the debate is grounded in facts. I agree with you in that the BBC has a great opportunity to be the impartial broadcaster, but... Does a polarised world mean that Gary's tweets continually drag it off course? I mean, you, you presented right to reply and obviously presented feedback for a long time. Has the public's view changed in a society where it's all a little more divisive? Do the public jump to more conclusions now than maybe they did 20, 30 years ago? You know, I have no way of knowing really, but this is would be my theory, uh, which is, of course... Um, we used to get, let's go back 10 years on feedback. We used to get letters from people outraged. They'd use, you know, did this to that and whatever. When you rang them up, which occasionally we didn't talk to them, they were so grateful that you talked to them because what actually they were doing was saying, I want to be heard. I don't feel any, I matter anymore. Nobody listens to me. 
So when you actually listen to them and talk to them, suddenly their tone altered. Now, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they had no means other than us ringing them up, you know, having their views expressed. Now on Twitter, they can. So they're, they're acting the same way. But this time, as a result of social media, they have a means of expressing it. And also, the other thing that's going on here, which is very strange, they say things, typing up, that they'd never see in a room with other people, let alone a hall. People have got this psychological, strange psychological feeling that somehow they're not publishing their views when they're publishing their views on Twitter and so on. So I don't think people have changed in their attitudes. I think that social media has liberated, if you like, those. But the dangers of all of this, just look across the United States, why I genuinely believe democracy is at risk. You have 70% of approximately of Republican voters who believe still that Donald Trump won the last presidential election and that there was widespread cheating uh, you know, in the, in the voting places and so on. No evidence at all from that. Plenty of evidence that Trump's a liar. Yet 70% of Republican supporters believe that, and they believe it because there isn't a BBC, because there isn't a national broadcast that people trust, because there are a whole range of organisations like Fox TV, as we now know from documents which have been disclosed in the last two weeks, that knows at the top what the truth is, but peddles lies, because if they don't peddle lies, their profits drop off. Now, that's the risk we're at. I, I just want to jump in because your question was, have public views changed? Yes, I think they have. And I, I've been asking my students all day today how they feel. Um, and the majority feel that if someone believes something passionately, or they have an ethical, political cause, then they should be allowed to tweet. So they start off by saying that, you know, that is what is exciting. And they certainly don't get impartiality. It's not part of their lexicon. It's certainly not cool. It's boring, as Faraz said. But it's interesting when you then kind of ask them, well, what would happen if a, if a football referee uh, the day before a big game, say Spurs versus Arsenal, it, if the ref was tweeting, come on Arsenal, you can do it boys, I'm with you all the way, would that be acceptable? And suddenly they begin to see, well, no, no, it wouldn't be. And I say, well, why not? And they say, because it would undermine our trust in, you know, not just in that match, but in football. Why, why would the Premier League allow that to happen? And so it's really about trust is what is disappearing. You know, you also asked, is it our fault? And I think in, in, in some way, yes, it is. You know, there was a generational change. This has changed over time. You can see it changing. And impartiality is dying. We are watching it die right here, right now. That's too extreme. I think it's something we're obviously going to come back to uh, on the show. I mean, another story that emerged this week, challenging uh, Director General Tim Davies' claim is that the BBC isn't being influenced by government because there was a leak of WhatsApp messages reported by The Guardian, revealing that BBC journalists were encouraged to shift their coverage on several political stories dating from 2020 to 2022. One example shows Number 10 requesting journalists avoid the word lockdown at the start of the pandemic. I mean, Roger, the government always wanted to influence the BBC and, and send messages and say, please, can, can you try and do this? I mean, this, basically, this is kind of time memorial, isn't it? Well, it is, and but it's also worrying. I mean, all governments try and influence the BBC and, and they had more, you know, they had more power in the past when the BBC was a, a virtually a lone broadcaster and then even when there were two or three or four other networks, they had more power. Yeah, I mean, all governments do this. All governments use what power they can to influence the BBC and they often do that by, you know, 
there's a license fee negotiation coming up. There's a charter renewal coming up. Well, yeah, right. Well, if you go on like that, we're not going to be very happy with you. And the BBC has developed over the years quite a lot of um, techniques for taking out, running with the punches, the management running with the punches. But when I was there, they, they, and of course, Alistair Campbell was ruthless for the Labour Party. So let's not pretend this is a part of political issue particularly. So that was happening. The, the sort of people at the top, you know, took it and they didn't even talk to people like me, editors like me. They encouraged me to be impartial, but they didn't pass the pressure on. What's disturbing about these emails, and we haven't seen them all, and they may, you know, I'd like to see them all, is that they do show the pressure being passed on. And they do show, or appear to show, BBC executives trying to adjust the coverage so that it doesn't offend the government. Now, I don't know how widespread it is, but that's deeply worrying. And I know people within the BBC are worried about that. And of course, it's compounded when you have a chairman who was a member of, shall we say, a right-wing Conservative Party grouping, a donor to the Conservative Party, and somebody who helped Boris Johnson's with his private financial difficulties when Johnson was in power and when Richard Sharp was thinking of, if not actually applying for chairmanship of the BBC, something he did not reveal to the appointment committee that in a rubber stamp what happened. So you've got all this suspicion. He's also got a number of other people at the top, including former person who was the former chief spokesman for one, a Tory prime minister, Theresa May. You've got all that going on. So there's a lot of suspicion. And then you've got these emails, which do appear to show executives not doing their job of protecting the journalists and editors. But there's not enough evidence to suggest it's really serious. There's enough evidence to suggest it's worrying and a bit suspicious, and we need to know more. Well, I think there's a crisis going on in social media as it is anyway. Like, Twitter is just not anywhere near as popular as it was when Gary Lineker first joined it. I mentioned earlier about how they've released this thing now where you can see the impression count on some of their tweets. You know, everyone keeps saying that Gary Lineker's got 9 million followers. Right, a tweet is generally, on average, I was looking at it, it looks like he gets about 100,000 impressions when he tweets. And an impression isn't necessarily somebody engaging with that content or reading it. It's just somebody that scrolled past it. So when you start looking at those numbers, you've actually only got a few thousand people at tops that are actually reading Gary Lineker's tweets until it becomes a big media story like this. And then actually, if you look at the impressions on this tweet that he sent out that was a reply to Suella Braverman, it's got something crazy like 18 million impressions. I don't think that that's come from Gary Lineker boosting his post via Twitter ads. It's because everyone's kind of pointed at it and said, look what's going on over there. So I think that there's a there's an issue around social media. I think ephemeral messages that we see on Instagram stories and on Snapchat and and on TikTok where people kind of see it and then it disappears. This whole deal of like delete the tweet and take it down, etc. is no longer a thing. Most young people aren't using Twitter and they're certainly not using social media that keep posts up forever in the way that we have seen this um, this in, this industry mature. So the actual nature of social media is, is evolving in itself. We are m- very rapidly moving toward a situation where artificial intelligence, ChatGPT, DALI, etc., is going to start having audiences question everything that they see with their own eyes, if it's even real in the first place, and we're going to have to have debates around that. So I think this is the start of something. I think what my concern is, is that we're doing a social media review that's, ki- I guess my point is, is it's kind of five years out of date. Like, we need to be looking at reviewing what's coming down the road rather than reviewing what's happened you know, when this all first started kicking off. 
Well, something that's coming quickly down the road for the BBC internally is disquiet from BBC local radio and local TV staff. There was one of the biggest strikes in more than a decade happening this week. This is because the BBC are going to be cutting some local news provision and doing regionalisation, moving some money to digital. And uh, there was a quote from Amanda White, who's a broadcaster at BBC Radio Humberside. She had a really good tweet. She was talking basically the BBC's move to digital now uh, is something actually that a lot of local radio staff have been trying to push for the last few years and find it difficult to get onto BBC Sounds or to even publish to the BBC website. I mean, Roger, there is significantly less money for the BBC than there used to be. By reaching local audiences, they can do that through the radio and telly, but doing it through digital is going to be important to try and grow that audience is their decision right but they're just getting pushback from from staff who are seeing their jobs affected well the latter is undoubtedly true uh, and that the move to digital has to take place but it's an argument about a, the pace of change the fact that you know, if you look at the age profile of a lot of people in local radio they're much older and they like this interaction you know and, and the question is how quickly do you move but the fundamental problem here is the bbc's purchasing power has dropped in real terms at least by 30% over the past 10 years. This has been a deliberate attempt by the government and now it's frozen the licence fee. So what it's done, it's put the BBC in a position where it has to make cuts and of course it stands back and said of course it's up to the BBC whatever cuts are going to be made. And so the BBC gets very unpopular. Now my basic concern about this is that if the BBC is going to make the cuts and you can't have cuts by committee we need to know what are the principles it's adopting here. What is its vision of public service broadcasting? And we've got to have some sort of situation debate where people can talk about that before the cuts are implemented. At the moment, we have a group of people at the top of the BBC. They shut the door, they decide what they want to do, and they start cutting now into a whole range of things that we lots of groups think are valuable, like the BBC Singers. I know you're going to have a conversation Mm. about that later, and other things. Now, But in doing so, they're going to affect the cultural life of this country. Now... They have to take decisions, but they're taking decisions without consulting. They're a public service organisation that isn't talking to the public. It's a danger. Everybody has to pay the last three. It's dangerously like taxation without representation. So before they push ahead with this, there's got to be a wider discussion. By the way, the regulations have changed about five years ago, so the BBC can make cuts without consultation with the regulator. But, you know, there's such such cutback in local media and in local journalism, that actually there's a case for increasing spending on local radio and doing the transition to digital rather more slowly. But that would be my preference. The point is there's no area in which we can debate these things, yet the cuts are being made. I'm interested in your Boston Tea Party analogy. Are people going to be chucking their DB radios uh, into, into the sea if they're unhappy? I mean, Graham, you spent 14 years working in kind of BBC regional broadcasting. Are they doing the right thing, but just too late and therefore too late and too quickly yeah it's very sad Uh, you know I've got a lot of friends who who still work in local radio and regional news a lot of very talented people I think it's 48 jobs are going to go regional documentaries have already gone of the sort I used to uh, produce and direct so it's very sad they're real lives people who will you know worry about how they're going to pay the mortgage and so on but on the other hand you know you can kind of see the BBC's point of view. The BBC are saying that, that these are not cuts, by the way. They're, they're saying they've got the, you know, the same amount of money. They are reallocating it quite willfully. Graham, do you believe that? I mean, are they, have they allowed for inflation? I'm being impartial. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying what. I'm just. I'm just saying what what they say. I mean, I remember. Look, as a kid listening to Radio Two when I was 
very young, people like Jimmy Young and Wogan, and they would always be saying uh, stuff like, next we're going to have a, a medley of Beatles hits played by the BBC Northern Radio Orchestra. And these kind of uh, easy listening things would come on. And the, the BBC had 11 of these full-time in-house orchestras. And then about, I think, 1980, they kind of got rid of them because people d didn't want to listen to that sort of thing. It's not nice. Change is painful and people get hurt, you know. But it's difficult. I, I, you know, I don't have any solutions. But, Graham what, Graham, what about older people? What about the older listeners? Maybe I have too much of an interest in it because of my own age. But it's one thing to correctly analyse the direction you should be going in. It's another to judge correctly the pace at which you could go in that direction. And there are a whole range of uh, older listeners who really enjoy the, you know, the sort of the intimacy, the conversation, if you like, they can almost have with local radio, which is much more difficult for them digitally. Now, do you say, too bad they're going to die anyway soon, and you should concern yourself with the future? Or should you say, no, this is public service? They love it. Why should we take it away I'm from that? I'm just going to bring bring Faraz there. Uh, I mean, there is an issue, obviously, of dealing for BCS to deal with all licence fee payers. I'd maybe argue that the BBC does very well for older audiences. You know, BBC TV, BBC One and BBC Two, average age is in the 60s. If you look at all of BBC Radio listening, it's 65 pluses that are really well catered for. For us, do you think it's a, an old versus young issue or something broader than that? I actually think it goes right back to the beginning of what Roger said at the, at the start of this, which is it's about being heard. And when you do local radio, you're far more likely to get heard by the BBC then, and then if you have these cuts and then suddenly everything becomes even further away from the audience and, and that I think is what's problematic and, and I always want to see what, you know, when you make these cuts, fine, sometimes this is required but what is the solution to the problems that it creates? If you're going to have less local radio, how do people connect with the BBC that aren't in London or they're not in Manchester or they're not in, in these areas where the red sofa exists or, or question time pops up in it's the, that that's the issue with this and if we get to a situation where less and less people feel like they're being heard by their national broadcaster and being i guess seen then we are going to have a situation where more and more people are are going to become more apathetic or, or even more dangerously hostile towards the bbc so we need a situation across the board i think it's irrelevant of age we just need a system where it feels like the bbc is both reflective and is listening to its audience that it's meant to be representing. All of our guests will be back to discuss the BBC's future in just a moment. But first, a deep dive. This week, we're looking at another cut causing upset, the disbanding of the BBC singers. I spoke to Freya Parr, writer for BBC Music Magazine, to find out more. So the BBC singers are essentially the BBC's only employed choral group. So the BBC orchestras and choirs are made up of five orchestras and just the one choir, BBC Singers. They've also got two choruses, which are associated to the BBC Symphony Orchestra and the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. However, those ones are made up of amateur singers, so they're not employed and they don't come under the same budgetary restrictions, essentially. But the BBC Singers are an extraordinary ensemble, regardless of the fact that they provide incredible performances for the BBC as a public service as part of that package. They are world-renowned, really, for their abilities, particularly within the new music space. So next year was meant to be their centenary. Who knows if they'll get there? But they've commissioned over 100 new works in that time. And it's quite hard in the kind of contemporary music space to know what's going to necessarily stick or whether those pieces of music will have any kind of legacy. But 
looking back on the stuff that they've commissioned over the last hundred years, it most definitely has. So they've worked with Benjamin Britten, Pierre Boulez, John Taverner, Thea Musgrave, Judith Weir, all the big names, really. So their canon speaks for itself. And they work with really challenging new music. There's roughly 20 people that are going to be affected by this, the closure of the BBC Singers, both within the ensemble itself and the associated administrative team and producers. So there's a lot of people that are going to lose their jobs as a result. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, the BBC obviously run orchestras as well. Should the BBC, should a media organisation have a choir or have orchestras? Or is it something that perhaps the funding should should live with someone else? I think this is a question that inevitably will come up quite a lot because I think anyone that doesn't work in the classical music space will think five orchestras and a choir for one organisation is a heck of a lot. And I know it, this whole conversation brings to mind, if anyone ever watched W1A, there was that whole episode about trying to disband the BBC swing band or whatever they had. <laughs> this is very much bringing that conversation to life in a very real way. But realistically, like the UK has always been and will continue to hopefully be a leader on the global stage in terms of classical music, particularly orchestral and choral music making. It's unequivocally one of the best. And I think it is, everyone would agree generally, and the critics would agree, musicians would agree, that the BBC plays a really important role in making making sure that not only music is being made on a really grand scale, but the the right composers are being commissioned, the right voices are being heard. Plenty of orchestras that exist to make money, they will still prioritise a lot of the the old white composers mm. who are long dead because they mm. sell tickets. The BBC has a public service requirement to keep working with different diverse voices. So I think everyone would agree that generally, like, it's hard to quantify at this point, but you know, you only create a classical music canon with time and Looking back in history 300 years ago, that was a lot of old white men. Today, the composing commissioning scene is very different. And that's the BBC is kind of at the forefront of that. But could we get Darren Henley uh, to put his hand in his pocket? He runs the Arts Council for England to fund this. So the Arts Council could never fund any BBC projects, but I think this whole conversation comes in the wake of the Arts Council announcements at the end of last year, which did mean that a huge swathe of arts organisations across the UK were affected and have had funding cut or funding lost entirely. So I think the classical music industry generally is feeling a bit burnt at the moment. The, mm. Like the Britain Symphonia and the English National Opera both lost all of their funding. And there are a lot of conversations being had about moving ensembles outside of London, which I think everyone would agree is an important thing to do and it, everything needs to be made more regional. But essentially the BBC orchestras will continue to be funded or not by exclusively the BBC because that's how the organisation set up. I mean, the BBC has said that it's looking to reset our relationship between salaried and freelance musicians, which sounds to me like is is moving from one to the other. What's your response to, to that argument? Yeah, so the head of orchestras and choirs, he kind of gave a follow-up comment about this particular decision to move to a more agile i think is the term that's being used mm. quite freely in this in this statement this new agile system of utilizing freelance musicians and he kind of said that was more in line with the rest of the classical music industry which to a certain extent it very much is it's an industry like a lot of the performance space that's built on a mix of salaried roles and freelance musicians but there's been a lot of criticism following this that actually particularly reflecting on covid when those freelance musicians had all of their work taken away and often many of whom were forced to kind of 
work in completely different spheres for those few years and have now only really got back on their feet in the performance space. That's tough on them. But also in an industry that, like, let's not beat around the bush, there's always criticisms that classical music is an elitist sphere. It's not accessible. You know, those criticisms are always railed against classical music and potentially to move to a more unstable freelance model, moving away from those more stable traditional salary positions might potentially deter different communities from accessing the industry and working within it. So there's a lot of criticism around that as well. That was Freya Parr. There's an even longer interview with her talking about all the issues affecting the BBC singers for all of our Patreon subscribers. To get that, just go to patreon.com slash mediapod. Sign up there and you'll get an archive of all of our full-length interviews, including a past interview we did with Roger Bolton about Beep Watch. Uh, right, time for a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back to ponder the BBC's next steps, plus the media quiz. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back with our panellists, Roger Bolton, Fraz Osman and Graham Majin to ponder why BBC has had such a difficult week and also what's next. Faraz, has this impartiality storm passed or been paused? We keep saying the word impartiality. Roger correctly said it's due impartiality. We haven't spoken about the word independence, both the independence of the BBC and the independence of, of its stars, its presenters, its freelancers, its production companies, etc. And and there is, I do get a sense that there is a bit of a chilling effect across internally at the BBC and externally but where there's just confusion about what it is people are and aren't allowed to do and we are we do seem to be addicted in this country to, to having reviews and to having reports that come out months later when the whole thing has died down and we need to get answers very quickly about whether or not if you're a freelance presenter or you've done some voiceover on a you know CBB show like we have, does that mean you're allowed to say something about your concerns around the environment or concerns around around immigration or identity, etc.? 
Uh, Roger, do you think we need a European-style sortition argument where we bring together, we mandate 100 people like a jury, uh, real people, to decide this rather than lean on some ex-BBC News exec to, to make their decision? Well, they'll have to make the decision, but, uh, and by the way, it can't possibly be uh, the, the chairman of the BBC is the BBC and will be the person who will have to sign off on these guidelines. I mean, you can't have a man like Richard Sharp deciding on impartiality for the future. It just won't work, so he'll have to go. Well, OK, just on that, because you were on, on GB News earlier this week saying that Richard Sharp should resign. I mean, he's had to be very quiet whilst all the Garanianica stuff's been going on. Very quiet, totally silent. Quite very quiet, totally silent. I mean, where was he last weekend? He was missing in action because he couldn't speak. Because if you'd, you know, if he had, you'd, the second question or the first question you'd have asked him is, can we ask you about your own impartiality in view of your financial links with Boris Johnson? So he can't do the job. So it's vital he goes. I think it's also vital the Director General says. I don't know. You see, the thing is this. If you come up with these guidelines, and I've tried to suggest that the clear, anybody in the BBC, News and Current Affairs, you don't tweet on these things. Any freelancer who makes occasional appearance, do what you like. It's this middle area. It'll only work if people agree. And if people will only agree if this thing is properly discussed widely and people understand impartial, due impartial, understand what the risks are, and then you have a better chance. You cannot impose this in a social media age without widespread agreement. That's the difficulty. Graham, I mean, the BBC was 100 last year, uh, and it's always obviously struggled to please everyone. How significant do you think this crisis is in the history of the BBC? Well, look, I, I think you've got to see it in context. I mean, you, you know, what we've been doing here is really just focusing in, zooming in on it. But if you zoom back, then you see this is taking one brick out of the wall of impartiality. Impartiality is, is like a Jenga tower and so okay this is just one brick this isn't going to break the BBC but a lot of bricks have been taken out of the wall and you know I think the the, the reason the BBC was impartial and, and journalism in general tried to be impartial I call it Victorian liberal journalism it was for a reason it was because they'd emerged historically from conflict and impartiality was this solution and we see it now as a problem and, you know, I think we lose impartiality at our peril. Faraz, you've been itching to ask some questions. <laughs> you've got some quick fire ones. Yeah, just, just because the pleasure of having both Roger and Graham to be able to speak to about this, there are some things that I am genuinely confused about, and I'd love to get their expert opinion on it as, as quickly as possible, obviously. Climate change and Brexit, do you, when it comes to, to impartiality, is that having a climate change denier and a non-climate change denier, or is it having nine economists that say Brexit's a bad idea and one that says it's a good idea? Or is it is impartiality having both sides on the sofa in the same numbers? That's a brilliant question. And that goes to the heart of the whole thing. You know, what is journalism and what is it for? I believe and would argue that journalism, it's not one thing. It changes, it evolves over time. And we kind of get the journalism we deserve. So if you look historically at what I call Victorian liberal journalism, then yes, of course. I mean, I think people back in the 30s or 40s would absolutely have had people come on with the other side of the argument, that they wouldn't have recognised the fact, you know, that we've got climate deniers. They'd have refused to, to, to frame it like that. They would, say, they would say, well, here's someone who has a different point of view. And, and the idea is to put the facts to people, separate facts from opinion, uh, and allow the listener to be a reasonable, independent thinker and come to a conclusion. 
that's all changed now. We don't think like that. It's become very tribal. And if I can just quickly say, I think the elephant in the room here is that there's a, a very substantial number of people who don't listen to the BBC, who, who find their news elsewhere, podcasts, blogs, Substack, and so on. They don't trust it. So, so the answer for us is yes, get those people back in the room because they're just excluded. They're gone. They're, they're the climate deniers, the anti-vaxxers, the conspiracy theorists, the friends of Putin. They're not allowed on, but they haven't gone away. They're just elsewhere. And Roger, they've got their own home now, haven't they, in places like GB News? Yeah, they have, and as long as they, uh, as the BBC exists, I'm not that worried about it. But I think you're confusing, or we're in danger of confusing impartiality and balance. There is no requirement to balance every point of view. I mean, when climate change was being initially discussed and so on, and when there was real debate between experts, climate experts, then, of course, you have to represent both sides. When there is a massive consensus about experts about something, you must always allow the occasional sceptic to have a word in, but you actually should go with the majority. But that's when you've reported and when experts have reported and broadly the scientific argument is settled. That's You can't say, well, OK, we're going to have climate change, we'll have, you know, denier on one side and whatever. I think the BBC got itself in a mess when it had people like Nigel Lawson on, the former Chancellor, who is very sceptical about climate change and they put him up against a climate scientist well he's not a scientist he could talk very well about business industry whatever but he had no credentials to challenge the science you know and so your obligation is to find a scientist who would challenge the scientist from a different position And when you don't find that you have to say broadly that argument's settled we don't need to have balance. We are being impartial because we're being driven by the facts, not by our prejudices. We're sick of experts now. Uh, I mean, I was l- looking at some, some budget coverage and a lot of the pushback was, but isn't the problems that we're in at the moment due to Brexit? And obviously every government response is, no, Brexit, isn't, Brexit hasn't anything uh, to, to do with this. Isn't that just the modern version of climate denial? Well, first of all, in, in judging Brexit, over what period did you judge it? And you've got people lying and denying and so on. And you've got, but this is a, an, an argument divides the country and they'll interpret the evidence as, as far as they can. The, the evidence is that in the short term, there's been a significant financial hit, uh, economic hit to this country. Now, you can argue about how long that will be, but it's undeniable that it's contributed to our economic woes in the short term. And I think nearly everybody you talk to would agree on that. Where they start to disagree is, is this temporary? Will this lead to the golden uplands or whatever? But what you have it there is two passionate groups of people who will never agree, interpreting the evidence entirely in the way that suits them. And that's why you need an organisation impartial, like the BBC News, saying, well, there's this evidence here and there's this evidence here, and on the whole, this is what majority of experts in the field think. I tried to do quickfire. I'm gonna no more quickfire questions from oh, you. Come on, I want, yes, no. I want yes, I want yes, I want yes, no. Should politicians be allowed on Ofcom TV channels? Yes or no? Okay, so so th- this story is if you read the Ofcom rules, politicians shouldn't present news programmes. The head of Ofcom was pulled on this, and she didn't particularly want to want to answer this week because if it's a current affairs programme or a discussion programme, then a politician can present. We've obviously seen a lot of politicians being signed up by GB News and also Talk TV. Graham, should politicians take the centre? 
chair? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, you know, should or ought. I mean, you can't answer that unless you say, well, what is the goal? What are we trying to achieve? What is the goal of journalism? What is the purpose of the BBC? I mean, back in the day, historically, they, you know, they, they would probably not have had politicians on presenting programmes, almost certainly not. That would have been a kind of horrific idea. But things have changed. We expect that. So I can't answer it. You know, it, it would require a bigger, more philosophical discussion. What, what is it we're trying to achieve? So, I mean, Roger, I mean, for Talk TV and for, um, for GB News, I mean, they're using it for, for clips, really, to try and drive awareness of, of their channels. And they know that politicians will, will give them some, some good lines. I have no objection to politicians presenting programmes on places like GB News where you know they're biased. Well, arguably, Ofcom shouldn't be allowing biased TV news channels, which is which is another thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I have no problem with politicians presenting programmes about football or fishing or whatever it is. But the moment you get anywhere near to anything controversial or whatever, no, they shouldn't. No more. No more. No, no, no more. Give me one more. Give me one more. Should Ian Wright be on Match of the Day when Arsenal are about to win the league? As long as Alan Shearer is there, he'll be supporting Newcastle and uh, Gary Lineker there supporting Leicester. OK, so we're going to leave this discussion there. There's obviously going to be more to, more to talk about on this topic. It's not going anywhere. Which I think we've just got enough time, even though Perez tried to drag us off course to do the media quiz. And brilliantly, producer Matt has made it a, one of his funny, difficult ones for me to explain. So everyone, listen carefully. We're going to be playing a game of Reverse That Story. I'm going to give you a headline in reverse and you're going to have to tell me what the story's about. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So uh, Roger will say, Roger. (laughs) I'm totally, I haven't followed the rules, I can't see. I thought you were going to give me a headline backwards and I was going to have you tell you what it referred to. That is, so we, we we need people to buzz in. So Faraz will say... Faraz! Roger will say... Roger. And Graham will say... Graham. I See, I've got the hang of this, haven't I? Good. Excellent. You're so bright. Right, OK. <laughs> right, here we go. Question one. Services, language, service, new, world, BBC, protect... Anybody? No. Right, uh, Roger, Roger. The Foreign Office has given an extra £30 million. Uh, to the BBC World Service after lobbying to enable it to keep on some services a bit longer. Yes, that's right. So 42 language services are going to be preserved uh, with an extra 20 million quid from the government. Graham, I mean, BBC and World Service has always been interconnected. It's good news, isn't it, that uh, some money's been freed up to save these services? Yes. I mean, well, the World Service is a bit of... um anomaly, though, because it's, it's always received government funding and there's always been a kind of propaganda and in inverted commas understanding that it's there to present the UK's policy and culture and foreign policy in a good light. But no, yes, no, 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 hold on, that's unfair. I don't oh, know if we Roger, go on. It's, it's sure, no, but surely it's about spreading, spreading the good word of Britain and what, what we want to happen around the world. What, what that's it, right, isn't it? it uh, yeah, but it's biased to this extent. It's biased in favour of liberal democracy, clearly, because it only believes that in only liberal democracy can a wide variety of views heard. And the government does determine its funding directly and the government does say where it should broadcast. But within that, the editors and producers and presenters on the World Service fight like hell to report as independently as possible, and they do so without fear or favour, and they criticise Britain. And you believe that, Roger? 
You believe I that? believe that largely, too, largely true. <laughs> and I think it's a battle every day, but I believe it's the battle they usually win. Graham, is, is it largely true? I think it's very difficult to know, but I mean, I think it's significant. The World Service, you know, does and always has received funding from the Foreign Office or from the UK government. And I think uh, there's an expectation, perhaps. I mean, you know, we've just been talking earlier, haven't we, about pressure from Number 10 tweeting, saying, you know, can we have a little less of this and a little bit more of this, please? And so I don't know how that works, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are frequent channels and conversations of that nature about let's have a bit more about this and a bit less about that. Okay, let, let's move on. Question number two. Uh, so buzz in when you can work out the headline. I'm reading it backwards. Here we go. Only online shows, children's, makes ITV oh, as for close us. to... This is, this is mine, right? This us. is my space, right? I, so, so unfortunately, I would say CITV is being taken off air there's apparently going to be a kids section of ITVX and uh, it basically means that, that ITV will only be airing children's programming via their streaming service. I mean, for us kids, do kids really watch linear television anymore? Do kids watch it's television? Stuff's... <laughs> I no, that. The no, answer do is kids yes. Watch linear... well, do kids watch linear television or are they much happier getting the remote control and diving into iPlayer or, or, or ITVX? Kids, kids aren't a monolith, so I think that the, the y- younger kids absolutely do watch linear television. I think CBBS is a national treasure and should be protected at all costs. I think that when you get to being slightly older, five plus, it does start to change and shift and they are interested in discovering their own brands and wanting to watch on demand and, and take delight in all of the things that an on-demand digital service offers. The reality about this, unfortunately, is the, the withdrawal of investment into children's television, which is already in a pretty dire state. And I actually do welcome the news that came out of the budget that says additional tax breaks are going to come to children's television, which is sorely needed after the mess they made of, of getting rid of the Young Audience Content Fund, which I think getting rid of the Young Audience Content Fund probably was the final nail in the coffin of, of ITV deciding to remove itself from this market. Well, quite a number of kind of CITV's original commissions were from the fund, Correct. weren't they? Uh, and pretty, and some of them pretty successful Correct. as well. But can I just say, no, one thing on this, which terribly important to say briefly, mm. the ITV is seriously discussing whether it wants to remain a public service broadcaster. And Peter, Sir Peter Basildon, it was its term, says that you know, with the broadcasting bill getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed, they really are asking whether they want to stay as a public service broadcaster. That sends a chill down my spine. I mean, just picking up on that, so historically a public broadcaster, uh, particularly in an analogue world, had commitments to do things like local news and in exchange they got access to free spectrum. Whereas nowadays, pretty much the only thing in the digital world uh, you get from the government is being at the top of the EPG. So if you are someone like ITV with a strong brand, you don't necessarily need to have that, that swap anymore and you can jettison some of these public commitments. Final headline, buzz in when you know the answer. Presenter off bake new is Hammond Allison. Graham. Graham. Because uh, I haven't got one right so far. This has <laughs> got to be something about Hammond is going to take over the great British bake off. Yes, breaking news or baking news. Uh, Alison Hammond is going to be the new uh, Bake Off presenter. I think that means you've got a point each, which means you're all winners and you all get to get together to decide the BBC's future of impartiality. So that's your prize. What an, what an impartial <laughs> quiz where, we, where we're, we're all winners and everyone gets heard appropriately. <laughs> uh, we, don't, we don't get a T-shirt with your face on it, Matt, no? Uh, s- sadly not. It's not. You it's promised not me. 
you promised me. You promised me, Matt. I mean, oh, can, can I can I do a plug? I've got nothing to Brass. do with this. I just think it's amazing. Sports Banger, which were an online sports brand, uh, well, kind of streetwear brand, started selling free Lineker t-shirts that went viral, and they were amazing. So go and check them out. If you want a free, if you don't, if you want to pay for a t-shirt and give some money to charity, then check out Sports Banger's free Lineker t-shirts because they're brilliant. Okay, so it's Gary Lineker t-shirts all round. <laughs> Thank you to Graham Ferraz and Roger for joining us today. Graham, how can people get hold of your book? Truthophobia, How the Boomers Broke Journalism is on Amazon or pop over to my website, which is truthophobia.net. Faraz, what's your next production on air? I can't tell you, Matt. I can't wait to tell you, but I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you. It's a, good, it's a good try. We are in, in chats about doing something that's, that's quite exciting, which I'm sure I'll be back on the pod to, to chat to you about. But until then, you could follow me on Twitter. Excellent. Uh, and Roger, how can people keep up with you and Beatwatch? Oh, well, they can uh, they can listen into Roger Bolton's Beatwatch if they want. Mind you, I'd have to say that I'm entirely dependent on the BBC uh, providing with me material. And of course, they're not letting me down for one moment. And I think for the next two years, there'll be plenty to talk about. Thank you all. Thanks so much for sticking with us today. It was a big one. We hope you enjoyed it. And remember, if you did like it, why not become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash mediapod and slinging us a few quid. Or why not talk about it on the socials? Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Snapchat. We'll take it all. And when you're there, pop in the URL podfollow.com slash themediapodcast. By clicking that link, it'll take you to the show, whichever app you use. So that's podfollow.com slash the media podcast. My name is Matt Deegan. The producer was Matt Hill with support from Phoebe Adler-Ryan. It was a Rethink Audio production. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.